Good morning. I'm Millie. I'm a member of the praise team here at MPC. And this morning we're reading from Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, Let him warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Bill. One last time, I'm one of the pastors here. If um, you go into ministry, you do a lot of giving introductions to speakers, and sometimes that's a duty, and sometimes it's just a sheer joy. And today, it is just really my own personal as well as ministerial pleasure to introduce to you Rico Tice, who will be sharing God's Word with us this morning. Um, Wow, there's so much to say. Um, Sometimes God gives you a friend that you just don't see that often, but you feel like you can immediately pick up and say whatever is on your heart. And God has been gracious with that, with me. I see Rico once a year, and I feel like I can give him anything and tell him anything, and he'll carry it with me. Um, Rico is the associate minister at All Souls Church, Langham Place, where a man that we all know as John Stott, but Rico knew as Uncle John, challenged him to create a thing called Christianity Explored. That's a ministry that's now used in 110 countries, 50 languages, with half a million people a year hearing about Jesus, with the singular goal of helping people realize for themselves who Jesus is. There's a ministry we run here at McLean Prez. If you're interested in being involved in it, please talk to me after the service. I'd love to help you get connected to that. Rico is also fundamentally a churchman, committedly a father and a husband, a former captain of the Oxford rugby team, and a man who loves Jesus and loves people and wants to tell them about Jesus. So brother, we are glad to Thank have you. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great working with John Stott. He used to get up at 10 to 5 each morning and slept for half an hour each afternoon, and I myself adopted one of those two habits. So it was lovely to <laughs> do that. If you could turn to the reading we had so well read for us, which was uh, page five. 
very happily there in the uh, 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 service orders. Page five. Great. Oh dear, my water. Great, and as we come to the Bible, let me pray. Father God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it is your word to us. We pray this morning that you'd speak to us in the very depths of our being. We ask that as the Bible is opened and we encounter what Jesus said, that it would drill so deeply into our souls that we remember it all our lives for his glory, for the great good of ourselves and for others. Amen. My dad worked for uh, 38, nearly 40 years for a tobacco multinational. Over here, it was Brown and Williamson. They were connected with Duke Tobacco. It was British American Tobacco Worldwide, BAT. So cradled a grave in the same company, went in at 22, came out at sort of 59. Um, in that time, as a family, I recall maybe only two or three conversations about the dangers of smoking and health. So as a family, um, until the sort of mid-80s when Dad retired, we basically lived in total denial about what cigarettes could do. When a family friend who had sons of 14 and 16 died of cancer and of lung cancer and was a heavy smoker, he just died of cancer. So we were fundamentally in denial about it. And I have to say, I never challenged my dad about that. He was a wonderful dad. I loved him very much, a wonderful provider and wonderful to my mum. Though, I guess, as we think about it now, in his career, he killed people, and I now bury them. You could make that de sort of definition. I have to say, though, more recently, um, I felt less guilty about my father's career. I'd never try and justify it. I'd never try and justify uh, cigarettes and smoking. I just feel less guilty because of what appears in England on the front of the cigarette uh, packets, and indeed over here. Smoking kills. Smoking when, harms, uh, when pregnant harms your baby. Smoking causes strokes and disability. I mean, there they are. There are pictures of people suffering terribly. I mean, I reckon that's a clear warning. And as you open a packet and decide to have a cigarette, you're hit with that warning, and you have to decide, out, decide as you look at it whether that is reality or whether it's a lie. And actually, as we come to this parable of Jesus this morning, can I say, I think we're in the same boat it's a chilling parable. And as we look at it now, we just have to decide, look, is this warning realistic or is it a lie? And just to say, I'm, I'm going to... Doug Beasel, thank you for lending me the packet, Admiral Doug. And I'll be returning that <laughs> straight after the service. But many thanks, sir, for lending it to me. I know you'll be desperate to get outside afterwards, so I'll get it to you then. In today's parable, Jesus is being as blunt as this cigarette packet. So do you think it's reality? That's the question. Let's have a look at it now. Two men, two destinies. Now, just to say a parable, ladies and gentlemen, is a literary device for teaching spiritual truth. So I'm not going in for medieval literalism here, but nevertheless, there are some chilling realities here which we ignore at our peril. And the church in my country is doing that. This is a much ignored parable of Jesus. I don't know what happens in Washington, but that's true in London. So let's have a look at these two men together. Can you see, as we look at verse 19 together, the first man is phenomenally wealthy. 
verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So he has the best and most fashionable clothes that money can buy. Not a day passes without some splendid banquet. Do you see the word gate there in verse 20? That's not like the gate of my little basement flat in London where I live. That's the gates of Buckingham Palace. That's the gates outside the White House. These are vast gates. That's what we've got here. And material prosperity oozes from this guy. His clothes, his food, his house, his life. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to making it, I, I don't know, I was trying to contextualize it, but I guess it would be breakfast at Congressional Country Club, is that right? Lunch at Old Ibit Grill and dinner at 1789. And if you'd like to take a clergyman to any of those places, that'd be lovely. <laughs> It would be, where would his boys be at school? Landon and his girls at Holton Arms. And he lives in Calorama. Is that right? Is that where he lives? Welcome if you live there. See me afterwards. Wonderful. And, you know, that's the life he's got. And, you know, it's absolutely fascinating. I think this is so striking. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. How about this for Washington and London? But Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things. So this man had been given so many gifts by God that he had not a problem till the day he died. I've got friends and they think, Oh, you only bother with Christianity if you've got a problem. Well, this guy was lavished with so many gifts from God that he didn't have a problem till the day he died. You know, the credit crunch in 2007, 2008, that didn't affect him. Looked over the wall at others, thought, oh, they're having a tough time, but not me. He was absolutely secure. He'd been given so many gifts and so many resources, and he just put it all down to himself. <laughs> so that's a faithless millionaire. Now, the second guy, uh, he couldn't be more different. Jesus paints a picture here of abject poverty, as extreme as the rich man's opulence. Have a look again at verse 20. What a verse it is. At his gate was laid. Now, the word in the Greek is sprawled. Sprawled a beggar named Lazarus. And what was he doing? Covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So for him, dinner time was ripping over, open the, 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 the trash uh, uh, can uh, uh, bags. That was dinner time. He was hungry. He'd have to go over to the rich man's trash and open it up and hope there was something to eat. That was how he lived. And his back was covered. I mean, actually, chronic malnutrition would do this, I guess, with sores. And dogs longed to lick his sores. I was in Delhi once, and I saw a man with a, a vast red sore on his ankle. I'd imagine a dog would want to lick that. Well, that's what's happening here. But it's very interesting. Do you see in verse 20, there's something that this poor man has got that the rich man doesn't have and it's so profound we could almost miss it do you see as we look down verse 20 at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus this is the only time in one of Jesus' parables that one of the characters has a name he gives him a name and he gives him a name because of what the name means in Hebrew the name is Eleazar which is he whom God helps so Lazarus was known by God, and he knew God, and he doesn't blame God uh, for his misfortune. He doesn't harbor bitterness against him. No, the name Lazarus means he patiently looked to God in his trials. There he is, overwhelmed with suffering, lying on the pavement with his back covered in sores, and he looks up and he says, Lord God, I trust in you. I look to you. Oh. His suffering doesn't sever his relationship with his Lord. No, no, he looks to his Lord. 
And you know, I've been struck with this as I was preparing. I thought this the other day. I thought, why is it that I haven't suffered and I haven't suffered in my life? Do you know why? I think it's because God can't trust me with suffering. But this man could be trusted. My problem so often with my faith is this, that I don't have in my, uh, faith in God. I have faith in my agenda for God. That's where the faith is. So, I, I mean, I hate to say it, ladies and gentlemen, but it's as though God is a waiter, and he comes along, you know, we tip him on a Sunday, and then, you know, he'll do what we say. But if that doesn't happen, we're furious, incandescent, because my plan hasn't worked out. So it's not faith in God, it's my agenda for God. Well, that's a long way from Lazarus, who depends on God and looks to his Lord. So I guess the question is, as we look at these two men, one incredibly wealthy but with no identity, the other utterly destitute but known by God is, whom would you rather be? Which one? So that's two men, and then we have two destinies. And at this point in time, Jesus draws back the curtain on eternity, and we see into eternity. And let's see what happens. And by the way, verse 22, as we look down, do you see our third verse? It's not a great verse. Have a look down. The time came when the beggar died, the angels carried to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Everyone's dead by the third verse. You know, in London, you wouldn't raise this at a dinner party. It would be just, you know, incorrect. Lazarus dies, Abraham dies, the rich man dies. Raise this at a dinner party, you'll soon get struck off the Christmas card list. So here we have it. And, but do you see the phrase there? Ladies and gentlemen, the time came. It speaks of the brevity of life. If you look at the Psalms, Israel's songbook, in here... Again and again, it says, do you realize the brevity of life? So we're told, life is like a mist. Comes up in the morning, the sun comes out, it's gone. We're told, your life is like a dream. You know, you wake up from a dream, what was that? Oh, I can't remember, I had something, it's gone. Your life is like chaff that's thrown in the air and it's blown away. As a pastor in the Psalms, you stand at a graveside, and from Psalm 103, you're to say, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows, its place remembers it no more. I've buried nine of my school friends. Nine. Life is so short. Life is like a sigh. It's gone. Our life is like water, the Psalms say, that drops into the ground. Where's it gone? Oh, it's gone. The brevity of life. And so the Psalms say... Teach us to number our days aright, Psalm 90, verse 12, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, saying, Lord, how long have I got? It's not long. What am I going to do with it? The brevity of life. Can we see it? The time came. It gives us humility. Actually, this came home rather starkly to me recently because a mate of mine emailed me a, 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 a form that insurance companies use to estimate the lifespan of their clients, and it's called, happily, the countdown calculator. Have you come across it? So you fill in your date of birth, and then you answer the, 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 the following questions. Do you smoke? Admiral Doug, you've got to stop. Do you smoke? Uh, 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 if so, how many? Do you exercise regularly? Uh, on average, how much do you drink? Do you eat saturated fats? Do you know what saturated fats are? That's things like gooseberries and carrot, carrots and Brussels sprouts. Don't touch them. They'll, they'll be the end of you. Don't go near them, those saturated fats. Carrots, terrible for you. Are you overweight? If so, by how much? I was at a motorway service station in, in England, and I got on one of those weight machines, and it said, one at a time, please. <laughs> and then the questionnaire goes on. 
on average, how much sleep do you get? That was okay. I'm a clergyman. I only work one day a week. That was fine. Is there a history of cardiovascular problems in your family? Have you ever been involved in a car accident? If so, how often? Like you're some psycho. (laughs) Anyway, you fill this in, and then it gives you your date of birth and your age of birth. I tell you what, I did it. The next day, I went for a run. I had a salad for lunch. I was in bed by 9.30. (laughs) The time came. Our lives are so short. But please see in this verse, verse 22, ladies and gentlemen, that the emphasis is on the fact that death is not the end. Jesus crucially teaches us here that our personalities do survive death in a conscious state. So there is life after death. The coffin isn't an exitless box. These two men encounter two very different destinies, and they are sustained in two very different states. At which point you say, prove that. How do you know that? People in Washington would think a statement like that is nuts. Well, you see, Christians believe and know, because it's historically checkable, that Jesus lived and taught and had a band of followers. And he was tried in a Roman and Jewish court and he was sentenced to die. And they strung him up on a cross and they put a spear through his side and they took him off the cross and they certified him as dead and they put him in a tomb and three days later he was walking around again. Now that past certainty gives us a future hope and a future warning. If he got through death himself, he can get me through and he will get us all through. That's the issue. On the Christianity Explored course, we spend a long time looking at the facts for the resurrection. The body disappeared, the body reappeared, the church emerged. What do you make of it? I know it's against the laws of nature. That's the whole point. God, who made the laws of nature, intervened in his world. It's an open universe. He raised his son from the dead so that we would be warned and know who his son is. And can you see Lazarus' destiny here in verse 22 as we looked down at Abraham's side? You see, uh, you know, a Jew couldn't wish for more. To be at the patriarch's side, united with the father of the nation. Heaven indeed. The new creation indeed. And what does it feel like? I mean, have you ever thought about that? What does heaven feel like? Well, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, and again, this is guaranteed by the resurrection... But this is what we're told about heaven. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So I wonder if you could think of this now. Can you please think of the best moment you've had in your life? What has been the most euphoric moment? I don't know, maybe the giddy elation of falling in love and knowing that's reciprocated and you look ahead and the joy of it. The most intimate relationship. Perhaps an achievement after years of work, and you've got there. A couple said to me, we were holding our baby boy when he smiled for the first time, and we nearly fell over with joy. So take that moment, you've got it now, and hear the verse. Did you hear it? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So take that verse and multiply its intensity by infinity, its duration by eternity, and that is what it's like to be in the new creation. And my goodness me, that's a joy. Because in this life, my feelings go up and down according to whether I've had a Mars bar. And as you can see, I've had a few, but they go up and down. (laughs) But not then. So Lazarus is at home, 
not sprawled at the gutter. He's at Abraham's side. He's totally secure. The arms are around him. And it's all guaranteed. Oh, it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My parents came to faith in their 70s. I love them very much. I'm going to see them again because of this. Do you know, the first funeral I took of a young man was a guy called Stuart Spencer. He was in his late 30s. He had a PhD, very bright man. He had leukemia, a musician, and he was dying. And he asked me to speak at his funeral, and I went to see him three days before he died. And I walked in. I I was 27. I just started in the pastoral ministry. I'm an absolute... And I suddenly blurted out, I, do, you know, do you ever have those out-of-body experiences where you think, I can't believe I've said that? But I, that's what I did. So I walked in and I suddenly said to him, Stuart, what's it like to die? And he looked at me thinking, I can't believe I've asked this buffoon to take my funeral. <laughs> but then he said something to me, and I'll never forget it. It's over 25 years ago now. He looked at me and he said, Rico, Christ has risen. Stuart, what's it like to die? Rico, Christ has risen. He said, Rico, the resurrection may be precious to you. Imagine what it means to me. I'll be standing before God in three days' time. A number of years ago, I was really struggling in my ministry, and I went and saw an older clergyman, and I, I, I went and saw him, and um, I just, I just, there was just a litany of woe and self-pity, and he was an Australian. And as I spoke, gradually his Australian lip curled with disdain as I gave him sort of 10, 15 minutes of all the different things that were problematic. And then he said to me, Rico, mate, I had a friend like you, clergyman like you and I. He committed suicide. And if I may say, you're not unlike him. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? And he said to me, he said, it's quite obvious, Rico, you don't give thanks in your life. I can hear it listening. He said, I want you to kneel by your bed morning and night, and I want you to give thanks to God. And why don't you begin with the future that he's given us? And do you know, that one habit transformed my bitter heart. Just kneeling by my bed, Lord Jesus, thank you for the new creation. Thank you for what you've done to get me there. So can I recommend that to you? It was wonderful to do. Morning and night, kneel by your bed, give thanks. So that is the poor man's destiny. But we also, here, ladies and gentlemen, we have to look at the rich man's destiny too. I wonder if you can see it as we look down. It's in verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment... He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Ladies and gentlemen, can you see here, and I say this with with great solemnity, can you see here that the Lord Jesus Christ warns us that there is a place called hell. And to say that there is no hell is to say that there were times when Jesus was telling the truth and times when he was lying. Now, I love to talk to people about heaven and the new creation, but I've got no integrity if I talk about that and don't talk about this. I love at funerals to tell people of the Christian hope, but what of this warning? It's a terrible warning. And it's given by the man, I think, the most loving man that ever lived. The man who said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then as he was being murdered, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This man, that loving, that correlation of life and lip warns me of this. What do you make of it? And he does it again and again so that we end up having to say, 
At the heart of the Christian faith, we're saved from hell, through the cross, for heaven. So I was uh, uh, in Chile when I was born. That's where I got my name, Rico Tice. Just to say, it's not Tico Rice. I'm often called Tico Rice, which sounds like number 42 at the takeaway, doesn't it? No, it's Rico Tice. And I was born in Chile, and then Dad went to Africa. And so I was a little four, five-year-old boy in Africa when Dad was growing tobacco. And when I was in Africa, there was no children's TV. And so I had hobbies as a little boy. And as a five-year-old in Africa, my two favorite hobbies were stamp collecting and butterflies. And for both of those hobbies, you needed one of these, a magnifying glass. But I soon found, as a five-year-old in Africa, that making little things bigger was not the only thing a magnifying glass could do. (laughs) I found that if you took one of these into the midday sun, the possibilities were endless. You could burn a pattern on on, on on a tree or on a leaf. You could set alight a piece of newspaper or even the gardener's hut. And best of all, I found, if you held your twin sister down, you could, you could scare the living daylights out of her with one of these. That was before I thought of ordination into the Anglican church. You see, you can take a magnifying glass and you can focus the rays of the sun into such a sharp point of intensity that it burns things. Well, imagine this morning, ladies and gentlemen, a massive moral magnifying glass the size of this room the size of this room, and through it our past, not the sun's rays, but God's righteous anger at the hatred, the gossip, the bitterness, the self-centeredness, the lies, the lust in my heart. And I'm not even talking about yours. But imagine the Creator's righteous anger And imagine it comes down, down, down until it's focused into one place at one point of history with such terrible intensity that on that Good Friday afternoon, the Son of God cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he is forsaken, so I need not be. He has given his life. He bore our sin. He paid our debt. He endured our penalty. He died our death to save us from hell. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that that is where I should go were it not for Christ's rescue. I'm not talking about other people. I'm not pointing at other people. I'm saying me. And I stand before you this morning, and it's such a privilege to be here because I know he did that for me. And that's how serious my sin was. Only the death and blood of Jesus could save me. So hell is a place that I need rescuing from. And I need rescuing from the suffering of that place. Can you see that Jesus here speaks of, ladies and gentlemen, he speaks of a conscious agony after death. I mean, what would this look like if a camera were to take a picture of it? Do you see verse 24? Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And I think the question is why? What is so serious about what this rich man has done that it merits this punishment? And there's a key word that unlocks why this is so serious. Can you see it in verse 25? Have a look at verse 25, ladies and gentlemen. But Abraham replied, Son, remember... Remember, remember how in your life, after those gifts had been lavished upon you, 
You established your real reference points for your goals, your aims for self-fulfillment, your life. Remember how you ignored the poor. So he knows the name of Lazarus at his gate, but he never helps him. He knows this beggar's name, but he doesn't lift a finger to help him. And you know, the Bible says, if we have no respect for the poor, we have no respect for the God who made them. It's a vast sin of omission. Remember the beggar at your gate you didn't help. Remember how you ignored the warnings of the Bible. And God will not be mocked. The Bible says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must, we must give an account. All sin must be paid for. Either we pay ourselves in hell or Jesus pays for us at the cross. And then there's the heart of sin. I wonder if you can see it as we look down. It's in verse 27, 28, 29. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father, for, to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. And they're having a marvelous life. Don't you think they always had a box at the Super Bowl every year? Don't you think that they had wonderful holidays at Martha's Vineyard? By the way, if you have a house there, welcome. Lovely to have you here. But what I'm saying is, is you know, they just had this love, these brothers, they're loving life because they've had gifts lavished upon them too. And then he says, may they be warned. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes, then they'll repent. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And now we're at the heart of sin. Do you know what the heart of sin is? It's to ignore the rescue of Jesus. God says, Rico, I've sent my son to die for you. He's paid in death and blood. And if you ignore that rescue, then you're at the heart of sin. The night before he died, Jesus warned, the Holy Spirit will be sent to convict of sin in regard, uh, in regard to sin because men don't believe in, you, in me. So let me just say for the Washington area and for London, to not believe in the rescue of Jesus is not an intellectual decision. It's a moral decision. It's a sin. It is the suppression of information that is given to us for our rescue. God says, I couldn't have done more. I've sent my son to die. And the men in my family say, the men in my family say, Rico, don't be ridiculous. We're good men. God will accept us because we're good. Well, why did he send his son to die if your goodness is good enough? And the whole Bible is about this rescue of Jesus. On the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, Jesus does a Bible study with the two disciples. He he doesn't say, it's me on the road. He says, can you see in the Bible, it's me? It's all about my rescue, the Bible. And there's a warning that I've come to rescue and you ought to care for the poor. And this man doesn't bother with either. And he finds himself in hell. Well, let me close. And the question is, who are we? Who are we, ladies and gentlemen, in this this parable of Jesus, this devastating parable? Well, we are in verse 28. I wonder if you can see us in verse 28. Do you see us as we look down? For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. We're the brothers. And the question is, will we be warned? They're still living. 
Will they take advantage of the rescue of Jesus? Will they be warned by their Bibles? And you see, this man, he says, listen, what my brothers need is a massive supernatural experience. That's what they need, like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, and then they'll believe it. Do you see what he says through that in verse 31? He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, they're going to suppress this truth because it's inconvenient. doesn't matter what they get, they're not having it. They want to live their own lives, and they'll be held to an account. It's agony. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, over the gates of hell are written the words, too late. Too late. That's what's over the gates of hell. Remember. Remember now, it will be too late. That's the agony. Now, my friends, they say, when I try and press this on them, they smile the English are great at deflecting stuff. They say, well, Rico, at least I'll be there with all my mates. No, friendship's a gift. It's a gift from God. I was wandering around Regent's Park on a run, going very slowly. I was going so slowly that I could read the back of bumper stickers. And there was one bumper sticker that said, paras don't die, they just regroup in hell. No, because that friendship, that camaraderie that is so wonderful is a gift from God, and he withdraws himself and his gifts. Remember. Remember before there's a day where there's no mercy left. Well, what do we do with this? Well, can I say, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and thank you for coming, can I ask you, does God know your name? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you to rescue you? Because I assure you, like that rich man, if you're anything like me, there are a ton of sins of omission where I haven't heeded the Bible's message and I need rescue. I'm pleading with you, please be rescued. Please. Jesus is not mucking around. He came to die to rescue you. Secondly, you see, the issue is, is do we have friends that need warning? And particularly, perhaps, there are friends that we wouldn't dream of warning because, of course, their lives are an upward trajectory because they've been lavished with so many gifts. So we can all think of a friend that we wouldn't really warn because, you know, I mean, they don't need it, do they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do, because they've received many gifts. And if you're not going to warn them, who else will? When I was at Oxford playing rugby there, um, uh, 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 in my first year there, I was playing rugby, and um, I gave a tape of a sermon I preached to a guy in the rugby club called, called uh, uh, Ed, and the, sake, the, the, the sermon was John 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that sermon on the tape, I said, either we pay for our sin ourselves in hell, or the Lamb of God pays for us as he dies on the cross. Please let the Lamb pay for you. Now, Ed had this tape, and he played it one evening before a game. There was a quiet night in. To Dave, who was captain of the Blues team then, and to uh, 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 Ben and to Chris. They were all non-Christians, but they played it because we knew each other and they thought it'd be a laugh. They put it on. And as the sermon played, and Dave, who was captain of the Blues team, heard me speak, he got more and more cross. And at the end of it, he said, Rico's not my friend. And they said, don't be ridiculous. You know, you play in the front row together, you play golf together, you room together on tour. And he said, no. If that's what he believes... The fact he said nothing to me means he doesn't care for me. If he cared for me, he'd have spoken to me. 
And then Ed rang me up at the theological college I was at, and he said, Rico, Dave's really upset you've not spoken to him. I think you need to speak to him. He was right, wasn't he? He was a leader of men. He understood. If you care for people and you believe it, you warn them. Who do you have to warn? I mean, I think of a neighbor. I really like him. I, do you know what I need to say? This is what you need to say. You need to say, listen, mate, honestly, uh, this, a comment like this is in danger of breaking a friendship, but I need to say it to you if I care for you. But you need to know that I do believe that there are eternal realities, and I think there's a place called hell. Mate, what do you think of that? Now, look, it's a pain line. But we, we have a responsibility to discharge this. And so often, Christians in London go, my faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life. I wouldn't dream of imposing it on someone else. So we care more about what people think of us now than of what they'll think of Christ on that day. So we need to warn people. So those are questions there. Do you love people? Do you believe this? And then thirdly, will you warn them? And this afternoon, I'm speaking at 5.15 from John chapter 3 on being born again. It's a wonderful passage on the work of the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's a fantastic passage on what God gives us in, his, in Christ through the cross. Please come back, maybe bring a friend back, 5.15 this afternoon to look at John chapter 3. And let me pray now for you if, if you need to now, today, come to faith in Christ. Can I plead with you to do it? If you need today to say, look, you've died to rescue me, Jesus. I've not put my trust in that. If that's the case, then I'm going to close now with a little prayer. And it just is something that you can echo in your own heart. So I'll say it once. And then once I've said it, I'll pray it slowly a second time. And can I plead with you to take advantage of it before you stand before God at judgment and you face hell if you have to pay for your sin yourselves? I'm pleading with you to act upon this. I think it's coming from a non-Christian home. I've just lived with people not acting on this again and again. So here's the prayer. Lord God, I'm so sorry that in many ways I've been like this rich man, taking your gifts and ignoring you, the giver. Most of all, I'm sorry for ignoring your son's death for me. Please forgive me. And please send your spirit into my life and help me to live with Jesus as my master. Well, that's the prayer. And if it's right for you, why not echo it in your heart, phrase by phrase? So here it is. Lord God, I'm so sorry that in many ways I've been like this rich man, taking your gifts and ignoring you, the giver. Most of all, I'm sorry for ignoring your son's death for me. Please forgive me, and please send your Holy Spirit into my life and help me to live with Jesus as my master. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, I've got a book I'd love to give you at the end. I'd love to see you again this afternoon at 5.15. Maybe you can bring a friend as we come back then. Thanks so much.